It was the first moment I can remember before I had kids having one of those times where I said, my kids will never do something like that. Words that every one of us that have uttered who then went on to have children have eaten repeatedly. But we were at a restaurant and I was with uh, some friends of mine and they, were, they, they had a couple kids and, and I didn't have any children at the time. And as we were at the restaurant, I watched as their oldest child spilled his drink. Now, his mom was, was quick to, to start wiping it up, and she lovingly put her arm around him and patted him on the shoulder and, and brought, him, brought him in close to her and said, it's okay, honey, we, we can get another one. Accidents happen, and the wait staff of the restaurant came over, and they cleaned everything up in a hurry, and it was just a touching, loving scene, but I wasn't so sure because I saw the face of the kid right before the drink spilled. And they brought a refill out, And a couple minutes later, the kid knocked the drink over again. And this time, the mom saw what I saw on the first time. And the mother, in a completely different voice, said to her child, just because we can get another one doesn't mean we want to. Just because we can get another one doesn't mean we want to. We're going to talk this morning about just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. I was reminded of this this week as I had an encounter with a coworker. I won't mention any names, but I had an encounter with a coworker this week who on Monday evening thought it would be a good idea with dinner to eat two dozen cloves of raw garlic. That's right, 24 cloves of raw garlic. And in case you think I'm exaggerating, I assure you I am not. It is purely because of the Lord's patience and grace and mercy that my unnamed co-worker is still with us today and able to serve today and that he's not in heaven. 24 cloves of garlic. Now, my unnamed co-worker's wife, Tara, came up to me in between, <laughs> came up to me in between services and said, the miracle isn't that he's alive. The miracle is that he's still married after eating two dozen cloves of raw garlic in one sitting. But it was just a little reminder to us all that whoever it was ate two dozen cloves of raw garlic. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And that's what we're going to be talking about today in Romans chapter 6. So if your phones or your tablets with you, I'd invite you to follow along with us in the Bible app. It's a free resource that you can install in the app store of your choosing. And once you have the Bible app downloaded and installed, you can follow along with us under the events feature, either by enabling your locations or typing in zip code 54201. If you have a traditional Bible with you, it's going to be the New Testament book of Romans chapter 6. If you're streaming along from home, thanks for joining us. And you can follow along with us on the screen as the verses will be available down below as we look at Romans 6 in just a moment. But we're in the middle of something called brand new. We're in the middle of something called brand new. And what we saw the first week was that the moment we follow Jesus, at the moment we become Christians, we are new creations. God makes us new creations. At the, at the moment that we are saved, we become new creations. And then we saw in the second week that not only are we new creations, but God's work doesn't stop there. Jesus actually intervenes on our behalf. Jesus continually serves as a mediator between us and God. And Jesus advocates for us. He hears our prayers. He takes them to God. Jesus is actively working behind the scenes as our advocate. And what we saw last week 
was the fact that we're new creations and the fact that Jesus is our advocate isn't because we're awesome. It isn't because we live good lives. It isn't because of anything that you and I could do or deserve or earn or buy or anything along those lines. But the only reason this happens is because God in his love for us has given us this gift. It can't be bought. It can't be deserved. It can't be earned. There is no way that we can attain it outside of God's loving goodness to us in offering us this gift. So that's where we've been up to this point. And now today we jump into Romans 6. We're going to start in verse 1 where we read these words. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's the question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, since we can't earn our salvation, since we can't earn our way to heaven, since it isn't an issue of whether or not we do more good than we do bad, and then we have some magic formula, and then all of a sudden we arrive at heaven because we're such awesome people, because we deserve it, because we've done more good than bad, since this has nothing to do with it, and since salvation is a gift to us, should our lives look like hell, even though our destiny and our destination is heaven. I mean, what incentive do we have? Why should we worry about honoring and pleasing God if no matter what we do, God has given us his grace. The salvation can't be taken away from us because we never earned it in the first place. It's a free gift to us. What incentive do we have to live good lives? Doesn't this just give us a license to go out and do whatever we want, to go out and do whatever feels good, to live however we want to live and not worry about the consequences, but if it feels good, do it, and to follow the passions of our body and to follow the passions of our mind and just whatever we feel like doing? Doesn't this give us a license to just go do it because we're going to end up in heaven anyway? Should this be what our lives look like? Should we do this and now we just get to, we get to receive more grace in the process just because we can? And then he continues in verse 2, by no means, by no means, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, you're not the only person who's had that question. And you might not phrase it that way, but you're not the only person who's asked that question of God, does my life, does how I live my life really matter? Or why does it matter if I'm already a Christian? Why does it really matter what I do if you're going to forgive me anyway? And if you're going to offer me your grace and your mercy and your patience and your kindness, which is in your nature, God, you're not the first person to ask that question. You're not the first person to wrestle with this. And here the Apostle Paul, in the strongest terms possible, says absolutely not. It's just not a no. It is an emphatic no that this cannot be. And then he introduces a new dynamic. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? We've talked about how at the moment of salvation, we are new creations. That we have crossed over from death into life. That's the transformation that God makes in all of our lives. But there's another, there's another transformation that happens as well. And that's our flesh. It crosses over from life to death. Now, we don't die in the physical standpoint, but what this means is it's a spiritual aspect where the things that would just drive us are no longer to drive us. See, before you follow Jesus, you have no incentive to honor God with your life. Why would you make God-honoring choices with your life if you don't follow Jesus? It makes no sense. You would naturally do whatever you want to do. 
If it feels good, you do it. You don't worry about the consequences. You have no desire to honor and please God with your life if you're not trying to follow after Jesus. If you don't care, then why would you, why would you impact your life in any way? And sometimes people who follow Jesus for a really long time look at other people and, and they think, well, their life's a wreck. Well, of course it's a wreck. Why would their life emulate the life that God has called us to live if they don't follow after God? It makes no sense. But the, the dynamic we're introduced here is that the moment we make the decision to follow Jesus, at the moment God saves us, there's a transformation. Not only were we spiritually dead and now we're alive, but all of the things that used to drive all of our decision making and all of the things that we would just follow after, we now have a different lens. And the flesh, the part of us that just drives every decision up to that point, the part of us that says, well, if it feels good, do it. Don't worry about whether or not it's right or wrong. Just go live your life. Go have fun. That part is now dead as a result of us following after Jesus. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is some of you are living like zombies. Some of you are living like zombies. Because the flesh is dead, but you're living a life where nobody could tell. And the call for us who follow Jesus is that this can't be the case. This can't be the case. And the reason why, we're going to look at. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. I'm going to read these verses again because we're going to, we're going to tear them apart in just a minute. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Now, you might read these verses and think, well, wait, does this mean that, that water baptism saves us? Is that what this means? I mean, because, again, it says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So is this, is this the idea that the Apostle Paul, under the guise of the Holy Spirit, is trying to get across here in Romans 6? three and four, that we have to be baptized in order to be saved? Well, what about people who were baptized as a child? Some of you came from families that, that where you were sprinkled as a child. So before you could even walk or talk, somebody else, whether it was a parent or a grandparent, made the decision for you to be sprinkled, that, that you would then be automatically a follower of Jesus out of no decision of your own. Is, is that what's being taught here? And the answer is no. This baptism has nothing to do with water. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what's being discussed in Romans 6, 3 to 4. And this is a spiritual process. Now, I say the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and some of you are like, what does that mean? Because there are some people who've hijacked this concept and tried to attach evidences that Scripture nowhere promises us as proof of this happening in your life. And nowhere are these evidences that, that some people proclaim promise to us in Scripture, but some people would try to attach them as proof that this has really occurred. This isn't talking about water or anything to do with spiritual gifts. Baptism is used in a sense here metaphorically. In the same way that you might say somebody's immersed in work or immersed in a paper or in a project, 
you, you don't really mean that they're underwater while they work or they're underwater while writing a paper or their project. It's just the idea that they've been completely covered by it. They are completely focused and completely covered in this activity. In the same way, when some people experience hard times, we would say, well, they've been baptized by the fire. When you experience a, a really trying uh, season of life, a really trying circumstance, when something heartbreaking can happen, and, and you go on from that, we say, hey, that you've been baptized by the fire. So in, in some ways, this is used metaphorically here in, in an instance such as that. But there is a very real spiritual meaning. So it's not just a metaphor. There is a very real spiritual meaning that accompanies that language as well. And that very real spiritual meaning is this, that every follower of Jesus, every follower of Jesus has been joined to Christ and that we are united and identified with him and united and identified with his death and with his resurrection. That at the moment we make the decision to follow after God, God comes and resides with us in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and he resides within us and he lives within us. And that marks us and identifies us as joining Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. That is what's being talked about here in Romans 6, 3 to 4. That is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit comes and resides within us. And now we are identified and unified in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, why, you might ask, then, why do, we, why do we baptize? Why do we baptize with water if this is talking about a spiritual process? Well, there are other passages in the New Testament that do talk about baptism by water, but water baptism is a picture. It's a picture of this process. It is a picture of us being identified and united in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is a picture of the process that the Holy Spirit has already done within our lives and within our hearts. That's the reason we baptize by immersion here at Lakeside, meaning we'll dunk you. That's, that's the picture. It's the picture of what the Holy Spirit has already done within us, that we are identified and unified in Jesus's death, his burial, and his resurrection. And baptism is a picture of that. It's an outward example of what God has already done within us, within our hearts through his Holy Spirit. It's also a picture of what Jesus did when Jesus died, he was buried, and then he resurrected. It's also a picture of us in our flesh, that our flesh is dying, our flesh is dead when we make the decision to follow after God and we are raised to new life. That is the spiritual process that God has done within us. And so baptism is an outward sign and an outward example of the inward spiritual process that God has done within us and a picture of what Jesus has done on our behalf in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That is why we baptize here by immersion underwater, and that's why we don't baptize kids. The reason we don't baptize kids is we believe this, in looking at the New Testament, we believe that baptism occurs after an individual has made the decision to follow after Jesus. And in the same way, we can't decide for anyone else whether or not they're going to follow after God we can't decide that for our kids. As much as we wish we could, we can't make that decision for our kids. They have free will, and they have the choice just like we had free will, and we have the choice. So does this mean we're angry at you if you got sprinkled as a child? No, absolutely not. 
In fact, we're excited that you came from a background where your family wanted to point you into the path of Jesus. Now, we would disagree in the means that they chose to do that, but we're not angry about that at all. We celebrate the fact that you came from a background where your parents, people that love you, wanted to set you up within a spiritual journey and a relationship with Jesus. But the reason we choose not to practice it here is as we look at the New Testament, we see that baptism is best understood as this picture for individuals to make after they've made the decision to follow after Jesus. But what's being talked about in Romans 6, 3 to 4, is not water baptism, meaning you do not have to be baptized in order to be saved. There will be people in heaven who made the decision to follow after Jesus, but were not obedient in the next command to go and be baptized, and this doesn't remove their salvation. They will still be in heaven But for those of us who follow after Jesus, it is clear, Scripture is clear, that we are to be baptized. We are to show people what Jesus has done. We are to show people the work of God within our hearts and within our lives. And this is an outward expression of an inward faith. And so if you haven't been baptized, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to take up an opportunity and to be baptized. And you might be thinking right now, you know, Brian, I love Jesus but I'm not ready to go meet him yet. And if we head down the lake, I'm probably going to meet him pretty soon. And I just want to set your heart at ease. We have ways of warming up the water, and I don't mean the lake, all right? We have portable baptistries, and, and we can hook those up. We can, we can get those established. But don't hesitate and don't wait. If you've made the decision to follow after Jesus and you've never been baptized as an outward expression of your inward faith, I would encourage you. I would encourage you to seriously consider it. If you were sprinkled as a child but never made the decision to be baptized after you personally made the decision to follow after Jesus, I would strongly encourage you, read over what the New Testament has to say about baptism. Look at how baptism operated within the New Testament. If you have questions, that's why we're here. Don't hesitate. Ask us questions. We'd love to have a further dialogue with you. Or if you're like, you know what, I just need to do it. Talk to us. And we'll set it up so that you can take the next step in your spiritual journey. But again, water baptism is important because God has told us to to do it. But the baptism that's being talked about here in Romans 6, 3 to 4, is a spiritual baptism that happens in every single person's life. At the moment they accept Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and marks us and he resides within us. That God himself in the third person of the Trinity lives within us and the power of God is alive within us. We go on in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him In a resurrection like his, since the sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient for us, we will experience the blessings it provides. Since the sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient for us, we will experience the blessings it provides. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin." Now, when we talk about this concept of old, we're not talking about elderly. We're not talking about old in an age sense or, or the elderly. We're talking about old in a worn out and in a useless sense, in a, in a way that we're talking not about age here, but about function. So let me give you an example of this. A few months ago, I went to the store and I found a pair of shoes for an unbelievable price. Like, I couldn't believe it. I thought it was a, an error on the, on the tag, and I'm like, 
score, right? Uh, so I went up and I bought the shoes and I half expected the register to ring up a different price and it didn't. And I was just shocked. I was blown away at how, how cheap these shoes were. And I got home and I, I told Brooklyn, my wife, I'm like, hey, I, I got a great deal on these shoes. And she's like, how much were they? And I told her and she said, oh, there's got to be something wrong with them. I'm like, there's nothing wrong with them. I'm just that good at finding deals. She's like, yeah, there's something wrong. I'm like, no, there's not. I'm just that good. And then a couple months later, as I was doing some Midwest meditation, which in case you're unfamiliar, is after you slip on the ice, you just lay there and look up at the sky and ponder life before you get back up. As I was doing some Midwest meditation, I realized that there was no tread on the bottom of these shoes that I had owned for less than six months, that it was completely worn out, and that my wife was right. There was something wrong with the shoes. Their tread was absolutely horrible. Now, some of you who love to buy shoes, you're like, oh, six months. That's a really long time for shoes. Now, others of you, you have shoes older in your closet than I am, all right? So it just, it just depends. But these shoes, they were completely worn out, not because they were old in an age sense, but because they no longer functioned as they needed to. There was no longer a tread on the bottom of these shoes. That's what our old self is. Our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This offers us freedom for those of us who made the decision to follow after God. This offers us freedom. And this is the transformation that God wants to do in our lives. That God wants to break down the old self. The part of us that would just do whatever we felt like doing, whether or not it was right or wrong. The part of us that would just follow whatever our first thought was and not even care if that honored or pleased God. And we would just go after it. God wants to break that down. And make a transformation in our lives. And then the appeal goes on. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And this is the hope of the resurrection, that Jesus died once and for all. Before Jesus came, every time you sinned, there was a sacrifice, and the sacrifice would cover that sin. But every time you made a mistake, there was another animal that got slaughtered. Every single time. Jesus paid the price for all sin once and for all, for all past sin, for all future sin, for all sin, for every single person who ever had lived and every single person who ever would live. Jesus paid that price once and for all. So it's not like every time I sin, Jesus has to die again or that Jesus has to die just for me and then has to die again just for you as would be under the Old Testament sacrificial system. No, Jesus died once and for all. Jesus met the standard of God. The standard was perfection. Jesus met that standard and then he went and he paid the price for all of our sin once and for all. But the benefit of that, while the payment was once, the benefit of that extends to everyone. It extends to everyone who will accept and receive this free gift, this free gift of grace. It extends to every single person who would make the decision to follow after Jesus. That is the hope of the resurrection, 
That is the hope that, that has to change our lives. And, and we see that in the next verse. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So stop living like you're dead. Stop living like you're dead. You have experienced life. Stop living like a zombie. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. I'm going to read that again. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So what do we do with all of this? Well, realize if you've made the decision to follow after Jesus every single day, you have a choice. Every day you have a choice of whether or not you're going to live for God or whether or not you're going to live to fulfill your own desires, to live whatever feels good, to fulfill whatever the first thought on your mind is, whether or not it's right or wrong, you don't even care. You just want to follow after that. Every day, you have that choice. And this is, this is the hard part. This is the hard part. Because if we're honest with, with ourselves... The reality is, when, when it starts, sin is fun. It feels good. If it didn't, we wouldn't do it. The problems come later. The problems come when sin costs us more than we ever expected it to cost us. And when it sticks around far after we thought we'd get rid of it. That's where the impact and the effects come, and we've all experienced those impacts. We've all experienced those effects, some to greater degrees than others, but every single one of us has experienced the impact and the effect of sin in our lives. But at the start, it's appealing. At the start, it's fun. It's good to chase that high. It's good to do whatever feels good and not worry about the consequences. It's good to pursue what makes us feel good. Now, we know there are consequences. We convince ourselves sometimes, uh, consequences aren't that bad. And if we're honest with ourselves, for those of us who followed after Jesus, sometimes we play the game that we started about all the way back in verse 1. And we don't say it like this, but really the thinking that drives our decision-making is, God's gracious. And he's merciful, and he's patient, and he's loving, and he's good. So if I just do whatever makes me feel good and I sin, he's going to forgive me. Should we live like this? By no means. 
Absolutely not. And we've seen all the reasons why. And that's the choice that you and I have to make every single day when we wake up. Is our destiny is heaven. That's our destination. And there is nothing we can say and nothing we can do to change that. That's our destiny and that's our destination if we've made the decision to follow after Jesus and accept his grace for our sin on our behalf. But that doesn't give us a license for our lives to look like hell. And that's the choice that we have to make every single day. I also want to remind you this, that our free will, our free will doesn't disappear the second we make the decision to follow after Jesus. Our free will doesn't just disappear the moment we make the decision to follow after God. It's still there. And some of you are beating yourselves up because you've put this idea of perfection over yourself. And yeah, the Bible very clearly tells us, live a life in pursuit of God. You're dead to your sin, but you've, you've put the standard of perfection over yourself. And it's not an issue of you trying to abuse grace. It's not an issue of you trying to abuse God's mercy and His love and His patience. It's an issue that you can't freely accept it and you can't freely receive it. And every time you find yourself in a situation where you fail and you don't measure up, the enemy's got you. And he uses it as a foothold. And he reminds you, God doesn't love you. You messed up. Look at what you've done now. I just want to encourage you that under the guise of the Holy Spirit, the same Apostle Paul who wrote these words also would later write, I do the very things I don't want to do. And some of you need to embrace grace. You need to embrace mercy. You need to embrace God's forgiveness and his patience in your life. Not as a form of abuse, but as just reminding the enemy, I've been united and I've been identified with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And that's my destiny. That's the one I follow after. And I think it's also important for those of us who followed Jesus for a really long time to remember something here. And it's important for us to remember that sanctification, the process of us becoming more and more like Jesus and less and less like our flesh, the, the process of that taking place, takes place oftentimes over a number of years. And so we have to be people who model grace and mercy and patience and kindness and when we see people along the way who, who haven't gotten it yet, we need to realize, first of all, if they haven't made the decision to follow after Jesus, what incentive would they possibly have for their lives to, to look like God wants their lives to look like? If you don't follow after Jesus, why in the world would you try to honor God with your choices? 
And second, for those that have made the decision to follow Jesus, whether they're new in their faith or whether they, whether they haven't matured to the point that they need to mature and that God wants them to mature to, we need to be gentle. And we need to be people who come alongside them and encourage them and not beat them up and challenge them, yes, but do so in a loving way, in a patient way, in a way that is full of mercy and kindness and grace along the way. For those who made the decision to follow Jesus, our slavery to sin is now a choice. And the question is, what choice will you make? Will you honor God? Or will you honor yourself? Nobody can answer that question for you. You have to decide that for yourself. God, I pray that we would be people who honor you with our choices that we make. I pray that we would be people who realize the transformation that you have made in our lives, that your spirit has come, and we are now identified and unified in your death, burial, and resurrection, that we have hope, and our destiny and our destination is heaven forever as a result of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us, that he paid the price for our sin once and for all. And we can experience your grace and your mercy. God, it calls us to live lives that are changed. It calls us to be different in how we conduct ourselves. I pray for the person who's who's followed after you, God, but never made the choice to take the next step and, and be obedient to what you've called them to do and be baptized. And I pray, God, that today would be the day they just decide, I'm just done putting it off. It's time. God, I pray for the person that hasn't yet made the decision to follow you, but who knows they're ready. And I pray in the quietness of this moment, God, that they would acknowledge who you are, that you are God, that you sent your son Jesus who lived a perfect life and he paid the price for our sin once and for all upon that cross. And three days later, he rose again, proving he was victorious over hell, death, sin in the grave. And I pray, God, in the quietness of this moment and the quietness of their heart, this would be the moment they decide, God, I'm going to live my life following after you. I pray, God, for those that have already made that decision, that with hearts that are full of gratitude for what you have done and the change that you have called us to, we would now give back a portion to you of that which you have entrusted to us, flowing from our thanksgiving of all that you've done for us. And God, we would cry out from our hearts, through our lungs, at the, top of, at the top of our lips. We would cry out and sing to you, worshiping you and the great God that you are. In your son, Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.